Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books in Sports. This is Rob Sherwood, a professor of history at Georgia Military College, and today I'll be your host. With us, we have John Morton, the author of Celebrate Winter, an Olympian Stories of a Life in Nordic Skiing. The book was published in 2021 and won the 2021 ULLR Award from the International Skiing History Association as an outstanding contribution to skiing's historical record. Welcome, John. Hi, Rob. Nice to be here. Grateful you could be here. So, John, I was—I wonder um, if we could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself. That is, uh, where were you born? Where you went to school? And I guess for our audience, most importantly, how you became interested in winter sports. Sure. Well, I grew up in uh, southwestern New Hampshire. And uh, back in those days, we got abundant snowfall. And uh, I lived on the top of a hill uh, surrounded by cow pastures. So I discovered uh, skiing. Uh, fairly early, and not as early as some people do now, but probably when I was seven or eight years old, and and um, uh, I just really loved it. The the little um, junior senior high school in our town offered uh, only at that time only two sports: um, basketball in the winter and and uh, baseball in the spring. And I was terrible at both of those, but I really enjoyed skiing. And uh, there was a there was a, a fellow in our town who was um, a graduate of a, a boarding school in central New Hampshire uh, that, that had a scholarship program and was trying to um, attract um, students from um, basically rural areas in New England rather than the, the urban areas and, and Connecticut, New York, and that sort of So um, I, I actually... The only reason I was interested in going away to school was because they had a ski team. And uh, I, I actually was awarded a scholarship to Tilton School. And I went there for four years and skied on the, the uh, Tilton School ski team um, at the time. And uh, we, it, was a, it was a wonderful competitive environment because there were a number of other schools in the region that all also had ski teams. And in those days, it was expected that you would compete in what they referred to as four events. And those four events were downhill, slalom, cross country, and jumping. And I just assumed that I would probably uh, compete mostly in downhill and jumping because at the time I figured those were the two that required the least amount of skill. But I, I quickly <laughs> learned that I wasn't particularly good at either one of those. And um, the, the of the four the uh, the one uh, discipline that was sort of the least popular was cross country, and um, I ended up uh, doing that more than than the other. And I, I I learned fairly quickly that the the key ingredient to success in cross country was your willingness to work hard, and that there was a real direct correlation between how conscientious you were about your training and and the results. And uh, 
so success at uh, Tilton School uh, allowed me to apply and be accepted at Middlebury College in Vermont, uh, which also had a, a good ski team. And, and I, I was very happy to be admitted there. I was um, um, earned a spot on the Middlebury College ski team. It also had, uh, at the, which I didn't realize when I applied, not that it would have changed my uh, decision at all, because I desperately wanted to go to Middlebury. Um, but Middlebury at the time had required ROTC uh, for the first two years. And that was, uh, I, I uh, matriculated there in the fall of 1964. And so for the first two years, along with all of my male classmates, um, we, we were all in ROTC. And every Thursday afternoon, we had drills on the at college athletic fields and we had classes in military science and military history and so forth. After the end of sophomore year, you had the opportunity to drop ROTC or stay in. And that was 1966. And many of us thought with the Vietnam War raging, we were probably going to end up going one way or another. And the, the thought was, well, we'd be better off going as officers rather than enlisted men. So, John, I appreciate that uh, background that you just gave us kind of about who you are. Um, can you explain to us the the structure of the book, how you kind of came up with it? It's, it's structured into three distinct sections, competing, coaching, and then skiing away a life. Um, how did you decide to structure it that way? Yeah, it was a bit of a challenge because the, the stories um, and the, the commentaries, uh, some of them uh, overlap and cover more than, you know, it might have been. Uh, partly competition. <clears throat> I actually competed uh, somewhat after I got through uh, coaching too. I took a year or so to try to race in a master's uh, level cross-country skiing. So, um, and I've got a couple of stories in there about that, but but basically it seemed like three logical sections, you know, competition, coaching, and then um, after after coaching. Um, even though I, w I wouldn't say they were absolute hard and fast um, segments. Okay, that's and that makes complete sense. Um, I imagine that there were quite a few stories that you had uh, that you didn't include. So how did you go about deciding which ones to include to share with kind of a broader audience and which ones to to not? Yeah, well, um, I guess I, the, the answer to that one would be there were some stories that are really important to me for various reasons, either because they um, uh, reflect the bigger issues beyond sports. I mean, the, the, if, you, if you're involved in international athletics uh, in, at any level, you realize pr pretty early on that there's a lot more to it than just this, the competition on the field of play. And you, you make great friends with with people from countries that, you know, politically, um, you know, we're not too friendly with. And you realize that you know, people, people have the same values and the same views, want the same, you know, better life for their kids everywhere in the world, not, not just in uh, the United States. Um, and so there were some stories that, that I knew I wanted in the book. Um, there were other stories that I was, uh, you know, there's some, some aspects of Nordic skiing, uh, for example, waxing, the waxing of skis. You know, that, that's not 
of broad interest to um, people who, who aren't into Nordic skiing. But for people who are into Nordic skiing, it's, it's a significant part of the sport. So I had to take the advice of this gal who has helped me with some copy editing. And, and uh, she was very candid and said, you know, this, this may be of interest to a small group of Nordic skiers, but it's not, it's not an engaging story um, to people who have never Nordic skied. So I, I had to take her advice on some of those and uh, just not include stories that uh, were maybe um, uh, important to me because I was so, um, you know, steeped in the sport. But I had to recognize that to a broader audience, it just wasn't that important. I appreciate that. That's uh, that's some good advice there for those future authors out there. You mentioned um, in your answer there uh, that you wanted to kind of identify the opportunities you had to develop friendships with those from other countries. Obviously, during your competing years and also your time as a coach, it was kind of during that middle to later part of the Cold War. Um, do you have any any uh, and friendships that you'd like to kind of identify? Um, I know in your book talks about a couple with Soviet athletes. Um, do you want to kind of talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, and, and it's an int- sort of an intriguing uh, dilemma in a way because, uh, you know, obviously a lot, lot has come out recently, especially since um, the Sochi Olympic Games, about the, the Russian you know, systematic system of doping. <clears throat> and to be candid, I mean, those of us that were competing back in the late 1960s, you know, we had suspicions that that the communist bloc countries were, you know, getting extra medical support, uh, if you want to call it that. And, and we, you know, there would be little bits of evidence here and there. Um, but in spite of all that, you know, this was, there was this very uh, outgoing, brash, sort of charismatic uh, Soviet athlete named Alexander Tikhonov. He was one of the most highly decorated athletes in the Soviet Union. He'd won, I think, something like 32 national championships in biathlon during his career, multiple world championships, um, multiple Olympic medals, although perhaps uh, significantly, he never won an individual um, Olympic medal, which was, he was very, very um, upset and disappointed about that. But he, um, he was always a key member of their relay team. And for a number of years, perhaps at least a decade or more, the Soviet Union was just unassailable at, in the biathlon relay. I mean, everybody just recognized they were going to win and the the fight was to see where the silver and bronze were going to go. But, um, you know, he and I, he and I became, uh, every time we'd see each other at world championships or Olympic games or something, we'd exchange gifts. And, um, you know, he, he, he was a friend. He invited me. He, at one point prior to the 1976 Olympics, he said, John, you're never going to be any good training in the United States. You got to come to the Soviet Union and train with us. And I thought at the time, um, you know, that that would be a hell of an idea because I could learn what they're doing. I could learn because at that time we didn't know much about what the Soviet training system was, but they were sure dominating at the at that time. 
And uh, so we went through the process of uh, trying to, to make that sort of exchange happen. And sort of at the last minute, I, I wasn't granted a visa, so it never happened. But um, and to be honest, in retrospect, you know, I don't I don't regret deeply that I, I wasn't able to do it because, it, you know, it, like so many things, it probably wasn't what it appeared to be on the a surface. And unfortunately, uh, Tikhonov has uh, had some real um, sort of, uh, I would say, unfortunate uh, incidents related to him in recent years and uh it's you know it's i guess just the way the life um life the different twists and turns that life takes but i mean he was just one of of many i, I can remember a, a a vivid conversation i had um i had uh as i said i was um an infantry officer in vietnam in 1970 and 71 and at the 72 Olympics in Sapporo, I was at a reception at some point. There was a biathlon association reception. And I was I encountered a, a, another friend of mine who had, was on the um, Great Britain biathlon team. And the Brits, of course, have a tremendous geographical disadvantage. But their biathletes were all in the military, and their military was all assigned temporary duty in Norway and were coached by Norwegian coaches. And so they were good. They were they were terrific competitors. And and we always thought we had done well if we'd beaten any of the Brits on the in, on an international race. This guy, Malcolm Hurst, uh, had just gotten back from a tour in Northern Ireland. And so we, here we were at the Olympic Games at, at a reception for international biathletes. And we were talking about our combat experiences the previous year. And, and he basically said that in Northern Ireland, he was just a target for both sides. And, um, you know, I shared some of my experiences from I was an advisor down in the Delta. And we both agreed how much better it was to participate in biathlon. Yeah, no question there. I appreciate you sharing those those two examples, um, and I'm sure you could share a, a whole lot more over a, a, a long time just meeting and uh, interacting with so many different people from around the world. Uh, just as an aside for our listeners, uh, if you're interested in kind of the history of Soviet biathlon, there's a wonderful book called um, Everyone to Skis by W.D. Frank, um, that does a very, very good job explaining why the Soviet Union was so good, not just possibly because of additional chemicals in their bodies, um, but why they were so good during this time period. So, John, your the stories about your competing days were, were very illuminating. Um, but this brings up a, an important question and one that as a, someone who researches biathlon, I get questions all the time. How do you explain biathlon to someone who has absolutely no idea what biathlon is? Most people, I'm going to assume, uh, when they think of skiing, think of slapping on two pieces of fiberglass to your feet, uh, going up on a chairlift, and then coming down the hill really fast. Uh, you, on the other hand, choose to ski up the hill <laughs> and not just down yeah, that's right, right. and then do it with a rifle on your back. So how do you explain the sport to people? Um, and then... What are some kind of the funny uh, experiences you've had trying to explain that? Yeah, 
Well, I, I think the easiest um, way for many people to understand it is to say that it evolved from contests of skill um, in, in um, Northern Europe, you know, and there's some dis arguments as to whether it evolved in uh, Sweden or Norway or perhaps even current, current day Russia. But, but it was an opportunity for, in, and initially it was hunters, people who, who went out in the wintertime on skis to, you know, get, get meat for their, their families or their communities. And they tested their skills on skis with marksmanship. And I think the first actual, you probably know this better than I do, but the first competition was actually pretty early. I mean, it was like the 1700s or something in in Norway. And, and it involved soldiers. Um, and by that time, you know, it was probably muskets or some, it, it wasn't, it wasn't bows and arrows, I don't think, at that point. But they uh, and it evolved from that point. But but the origins clearly are um, how how to test the the winter skills of of skiing and marksmanship, and uh, and obviously it does it involves cross country skiing rather than downhill skiing, and uh, through the years the the events have evolved. Uh, one of the biggest breakthroughs in the sport um, came when they they switched to metal targets, knockdown targets, because back in the days when we were competing, uh, we shot on paper and you couldn't, the, the spectators had no idea how the the marksmanship phase of the sport was was going until well after the race, because all the targets had to be scored and um, th then that the, the penalties had to be added to the uh, ski time so the the breakthrough and it must have been I don't know somewhere in the late 1970s early 1980s I can't remember if the 80 Olympics were on metal targets or not but that was a huge breakthrough because it made the sport so much more uh, exciting and and People could watch and see uh, how accurately the athletes were shooting. And uh, then to, to their credit, the International Biathlon Federation um, recognized the, the value, the visual value of, of the excitement of what would, because unlike a cross-country ski race, the, the shooting changes the lead dramatically. It can, somebody can come in well in the lead as you know, and, and miss a target or two. And, you know, several other athletes can pass and, and uh, go out ahead. So that the fact that the lead is constantly changing adds a whole level of excitement. And the IBU recognized that and was able to, with the help of uh, various TV production companies, make the sport very, very engaging visually to the spectators. And then it just took off in Europe. And they, I think um, my, my understanding is that um, the, the World Cup events that happen almost every weekend in Europe attract um, a television audience in Europe that's comparable to Monday night football here in the United States. Which, so, which is amazing. Are, like, 
25 million or 30 million households or something across Europe that watch biathlon every week. And, and these World Cup events typically involve at least three days of racing, both for men and women. And they've done a wonderful job now of expanding the, the events. So in the old days, when I was competing, we had basically two events, the 20-kilometer individual and the relay. And then later they added the 10K sprint for men. Now they have, I think at the last Olympics, there were something like um, 13 biathlon events, you know, half for men, half for women. And, and I guess maybe one or two that combine both men and women. So the sport has really grown and prospered and, and largely due to the perceptiveness and innovation of the folks who are you know, managing it internationally. I, I appreciate that. Um, one of the other things, if I could just add, I think that helped quite a bit was the shortening of the distance of the range from 100 plus meters to 50, the small caliber okay. rifle as a part as a part of the large caliber, more people can be involved with small caliber and it, it becomes very much a spectator event. So, and today you can watch a biathlon a whole lot easier than you could 10 years ago. There's no question about that. Absolutely right. Yeah. So John, one of the stories that I kind of wanted to identify in, in your book that you talked about, um, I believe you were the biathlon team leader at the 1980 winter Olympics hosted by Lake Placid. Um, yeah, I actually was an assistant coach. Assistant coach, I sorry. Sort of, I was on last. I I had been a, or I have been a team leader to uh, three Olympics, but in '80 I was uh, sort of a last minute addition as an is assistant coach. Okay, sorry that I got the the title incorrect. Yeah, no problem. A different no problem. responsibilities as an assistant coach from a team leader, I can imagine. Yeah, yep. But what are the stories that you share? Um, fascinated me as someone who really enjoys sport history. And I think our readers would, would really be interested in you kind of re retelling the story, if you don't mind, how you ended up at the hockey match between the United States and the Soviet Union. Sure. So um, probably most people uh, would, wouldn't remember these details, but the, the salt, I'm sorry, the, the Lake Placid uh, Olympics were Leading into it, there were very high expectations for the U.S. Nordic skiers and biathletes. Uh, Bill Koch had won a silver medal in cross-country skiing in 1976 in Innsbruck. Everybody assumed that, oh, Lake Placid, home court advantage, everybody in the world's coming to the USA. You know, this is will be where Koch will win his gold. And, and the biathletes... Um, had actually done well leading up to um, 1980 as well. But the, it, it was almost a case of too much publicity and too much um, media attention and, uh, and things didn't go well. It didn't, they, they didn't go well for the U S cross country team. And it certainly didn't go well for the biathletes. And, you know, it's very difficult in some instances when you get, it, it's almost like a descending spiral. You know, you if you have high expectations, the results aren't there. If people get overtired, they oftentimes get sick. You you know, one of the biggest um, issues at a, an Olympic Games is people just getting sick, getting the common cold or a flu or something, because you got athletes coming in from all over the world with all kinds of different, you know, germs, and it's impossible to to try to keep everybody healthy. Well, by the end of the, the games, 
everybody was was basically sick and tired and exhausted. We were sitting in the um, uh, dining hall at the Olympic Village, which was actually several miles away from Lake Placid in what was built to be after the games, a correctional facility. So we're basically, they put all the athletes up in what was going to be a jail or (laughs) prison. And uh, which, you know, was not, they basically small, narrow rooms with very narrow windows. And uh, anyway, we're at the dining hall um, and an Olympic committee official came through and said, hey, I've got some tickets for tonight's hockey game. Anybody want them? And all our athletes, no, I don't want to go into town. I'm too tired. No, I'm going to read my book. No, no, no. I felt badly for the guy. Here he was trying to give away a couple of hockey tickets. And I said, you sure, you guys? No, you don't want to go see a hockey game? And I tried to encourage them. Nobody wanted to go. So feeling badly for the guy, I said, okay, I'll take I'll take it here. And he said, okay. You know, it starts at whatever, 8 o'clock or something. And it was a bit of a procedure you know you go through security to get out of the olympic village and get on the shuttle bus and get into town and go through security to get into the arena i didn't even know which teams were playing i didn't even ask we got in there and it's oh it's the usa soviet union but even then it wasn't that big a deal because the soviet union had beaten the usa team something like 11 to 2 just before the start of the Olympics. They'd beaten the NHL All Stars on something like 13 to 0 or something prior to the Olympic Games. So nobody in the stadium thought, or, or the arena there, thought that the USA had a chance to win that game. It was just a question of, you know, could, could they keep from it being a real rout? because everyone knew the Soviet team was just dominant. And then as the game proceeded, it's everybody's kind of to say, whoa, you know, whatever. I, I can't even remember now, but I think it was like, it was tied up at maybe at the end of the, if it was not the first period of the second period. I do remember a shot, an American shot on goal, just as the buzzer was about to, ring and I was I looked up at the clock to see if the goal was going to count and it did and I thought whoa this this is amazing and then everybody was just holding their breath for the third period because they thought the Soviets are just going to come back they're ticked they're just going to run the score up to 6 to 2 or something like that but the Americans they just got hung in there they just and and Jim Craig who was the goalie was just phenomenal, just one save after another. And as the clock started winding down, everybody starts thinking, oh, and this could really happen. This could really. And uh, I, I've often said it probably was the greatest sports event I'll ever see um, in person in my life. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to see a number of Really, really impressive performances, but that one was was unforgettable. And it's I, I'll give a lot of credit to the folks who made the the movie. Um, Mir- I guess it's called Miracle, because it's quite a my my recollection is that's quite accurate. And I could I vividly remember 
um, you know, the coach, Herb Brooks, I, I was in the balcony across from the U.S., um, um, you know, bench. And I can remember all the athletes going out on the ice and the big pig pile and piling on Jim Craig and big celebration. Meanwhile, the Soviets were all on the blue line waiting to shake hands. And they're getting, you know, you could tell they were getting impatient. And I'm looking at them and I'm sort of hoping the Americans kind of figure out, oh, yeah, you were supposed to go shake hands with the Soviets. And which eventually they did. But and then I remember Brooks just taking a look around the arena and then walking out, walking in the tunnel. And I thought, huh, I wonder what that's about. And then I learned after the fact that he was interviewed about it. And he said, look, it was their moment. They're the ones who did it. It's their moment. They deserve that. And I thought, wow, that's that's very classy for a, for a coach. You see so many coaches these days, especially, you know, professional sports, that it's all about the interviews and the time on the camera and everything. And I thought, boy, classy, classy coach to just um, give the athletes the, the uh, attention. But it was an unforgettable. Then the, they had made uh, the main street of Lake Placid was a, like a pedestrian mall. And it was just mobbed. And everybody, athletes from all over, coaches, every country. Uh, if you had a USA on your coat, you were getting hugged up and down the street <laughs> all night long. It was amazing. So I guess to, to, to wrap that story up, when you got back to the Olympic Village, um, were those <laughs> yeah. athletes a little bit disappointed? <laughs> yeah. I think they were... I, to be honest, I don't remember much other than that. I'm sure they were sort of embarrassed that they, and they may not have actually even been aware of the full impact of it or, you know, days or even years later. I mean, they, I'm sure that there were, there are some regrets though, that they, they realized they had the opportunity to see the sporting event of a lifetime. And I just have always felt I, there was nothing for me other than luck, just pure luck that I had the luck of saying, yeah, okay, I'll take, I'll take it. Sometimes luck works in our favor. Sometimes it doesn't. We always got to be grateful when it does. Yeah, you're right. So John, in your, your book, in your three kind of, um, the way you separated it, competing, coaching, and skiing, a way of life. Obviously, as you read the book and you, you read these stories that you write about, it's evident that each one of these three has affected who you are. Can you share us a little bit about how each of those three aspects, competing, coaching, and skiing a way of life has affected you? Okay, good question. Well, um, you know, competing for me, uh, that I would, it was not much of an exaggeration to say that. That was a real major focus for me for much of my youth and then on through college and four years in the military and, and probably uh, another, at least another four years after that. Uh, um, and it, you know, because biathlon is a, is a challenging sport and because um, you, you fall short far more often than you achieve your goals. I mean, it's very, very rare that you finish a biathlon rates and say, yep, that's, that's the best I could have done. I mean, you've always missed one target or two targets, or you've always, you know, could have skied one hill 
a little harder or maybe you get passed by somebody and think, God, if I just dug a little deeper, I could have stuck with them. So you, you learn to be resilient. You learn to be uh, um, that, okay, you know, I didn't achieve what, what I hoped to today, but there's always tomorrow or next week or next weekend. And, and so I think my competitive uh, years taught me a lot about um, uh, just living life and, and trying to be uh, resilient and motivated and focused, reasonably disciplined, um, goal-oriented. Um, then as a coach, um, it's, it's sort of ironic be, because obviously what you're trying to do as a coach is you're trying to get the best out of your athletes. You're trying to help them perform their best when it really counts. And a lot of coaches are able to do that. But again, you know, not all athletes, especially college athletes that have demanding academics and they have a social life and they, you know, they, they may not have a goal of competing in the Olympic games. They may, they may know they're going to be headed to medical school or law school. Uh, but this is just a phase of their college experience. So, um, I think one of the things that I was able to do is, is help some of these athletes keep things in perspective. I mean, uh, um, as you, have you probably have recognized that coaching um, college cross country runners, it's not a level playing field. I mean, a, a school like Dartmouth College off, does not offer athletic scholarships. It, it has a lot of financial aid that's based on need, but it doesn't a offer athletic scholarships. So at the NCAA championships, the Dartmouth skiers and Middlebury skiers and a lot of other um, small college teams go up against big universities that offer athletic scholarships and and recruit athletes that are a number of years older from Europe and Scandinavia and other places. And, and as a coach, you've got to help your athletes understand that you, you do your best. And and then uh, and then more recently, it's, um, I have a couple of granddaughters that through no pushing on my part have discovered Nordic skiing and they love it and they can't, they can't get enough of it. And it's a real treat for me to just get out there and shuffle along, try to keep up. <laughs> and, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful, you know, sort of almost like full circle that, that, um, you know, the most I can say is I, I made sure that they had a good trail out the back of their house. <laughs> they can, they can go out and walk in the summertime and ski in the wintertime. I, I appreciate that last little bit there. Um, to me, it seems like, especially when you, in, as I read the skiing away, is a way of life section, um, Nordic skiing appears to be a sport that it doesn't matter how old you are because the, there's, a, there's at least a trail for most people. Uh, the demands on the joints are not such that you're going to kill yourself um, and you can get out there and really enjoy nature. Your one story where you went, I believe it was 20 miles in one day, kind of through the wilderness. I may have get, may get the details incorrect. That was a wonderful um, just kind of recognition of the, the beauty that's around you that you can get and the silence in the forest, except for the shushing of the skis. Yeah. Yeah, it is a beautiful sport. And and unfortunately, it gets a little bit of a bad rap because most people's 
um, view of the sport is what they see on TV, which is the the best, the the, the highest trained athletes in the world, uh, bar none. You know, they they are they have the highest oxygen uptake levels of any athletes in the world, and you see them collapsing across the finish line, you know, heaving and and gasping, and oftentimes you know, with mucus and snot and everything all, all over them. And that's, you know, that's not an especially appealing image for the <laughs> average recreational skier saying, oh, yeah, I want to get out and do that. But in, it's, in a way, it's, a, it's not that it's a different sport, but at the recreational level, it, it doesn't have to be that. It's not that demanding. It's not that exhausting. It can be exhilarating. It's a wonderful feeling of just having your skis glide over the snow and the you know the down the downhills are are a rush they are really fun (laughs) it's a joy that's awesome um so john to kind of wrap up our our discussion here i got one kind of last kind of big question then we'll let you talk for a little bit um the title of the book celebrating winter so as you look back at your life and especially the what you've written about how has celebrating winter changed you? Well, I, I would say it's made all the difference. Um, you know, I've spent, I've lived in a northern climate uh, for my entire life. Uh, Ten years in Alaska, rest of it um, here in northern New England. And in fact, ironically, one of the things that we're all concerned about now is that the, the winters that we are anticipating are not the same kind of winters that we remember. And, and that for many of us that really enjoy winter sports, uh, that's a real concern. And, and uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, obviously depending on, you know, how you're involved or what your perspective is there, the ski areas in the, Northern part of the country are, are looking really seriously at how many days that, they anticipate they can be open. And at what point does that become, you know, unsustainable? And fortunately, machine-made snow is is you know, based is is helping in that regard, but they do have to have cold temperatures to to make snow. So uh it's um I'd say that that I was fortunate in the sense that um when where where I grew up and when I grew up um, I, I, I didn't reject winter and cold weather. I, I enjoyed it and embraced it and found a way to, um, make the most of it. And I've always, I've felt that way uh, ever since. I, I love all four seasons we have here in Northern New England, but I really love winter. <laughs> I appreciate that. Living in Georgia, I miss winter quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> we just have hot and hotter um it seems like yeah yeah john we've taken a lot of your time and there's a kind of a traditional question that we ask at the end of all of our interviews on new books and sports network um and the question is simply what are you working on now in terms of writing um or are you you pretty much done no thanks for the question and as i maybe hinted at at the outset of of these uh, all these articles and um, commentaries I did, a 
about 50% of them were about skiing and about 50% of them were about other things, other sports, other, other issues. I think I did, uh, I haven't totaled them up yet, but during the whole sort of Lance Armstrong saga, I think I did maybe four or five different commentaries or columns on Lance Armstrong. And it's uh, so I have a number of, I, I basically, I want to put together a collection similar to Celebrate Winter of the, the other stories that don't deal with skiing. Okay. Well, great. We'll, we'll definitely be looking out for that when it, uh, when it makes, when it makes its way to the press. Um, John, we appreciate all, all your time today. Uh, I've really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, once again, the book is Celebrate Winter and Olympian Stories of a Life of Nordic Skiing by John Morton. And this is Rob Sherwood wishing everyone a wonderful day.